You see, audiences, in the real sense of the word, are disappearing. There are almost none left. It's an endangered species. Everybody's on? No. You see, this isn't an audience here. No. False pretext? No, no. It's wonderful, lovely people, and we're so grateful for you, but you're not an audience. You got in free. <laughs> an audience And not work. only did you get in free, but you know, as does every studio audience, that you are not here to do anything except be a member of the cast and to help us look good. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Seriously. Have you ever seen... Have you ever seen a television show where the audience booed and hissed or refused to applaud? We're always it's always a big hit on television, isn't it? No, because the people who come to the show know that they're part of the cast yeah. and have to help us not to look ridiculous. Yeah. Our real audience is two or three people in a living room scattered mm. all over the right. place, but that isn't a real audience. No. An audience is a big, many-headed beast crouching out there in the darkness, waiting to eat us up or love us or whatever. And it must be either seduced or tamed or raped or whatever. And it must be dealt with. How Because anybody who deals with a real audience, as I have, my goodness, think how long I've been in show business. I've been hissed and booed. I've had things thrown at me. Until you've had that experience, you don't understand what dealing with an audience is. Uh, hey, yo. Hey, Danny Kay. Just a minute, chum. Are you addressing me? Yeah, Kay, I... Oh, you're Orson Welles. <laughs> I mistook you for Danny Kay. How dare you? <laughs> oh, excuse me, Mr. Welles, I should have known. I just saw your latest picture. Tomorrow's forever. Thank you, but I'm on my way to appear on the Danny Kay program. Yeah? You're gonna think tonight's forever. <laughs> Who are you? I'm an average radio listener. Well, you look older than 12. <laughs> But tell me, my Vox Popoff, I haven't heard any of Mr. K's programs this year. What does he do? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> All I know is he has one joke. My sister married an Irishman, O'Reilly, no O'Reilly. You'll find out. Now, just a minute, my killer cycle killjoy. In the spring of 1946, with production on The Stranger Wrapped, Wells was back in Hollywood taking guest spots on The Danny Kay Show, The Fred Allen Show, and Radio Reader's Digest. Greeting Cards present the Reader's Digest Radio Edition, starring today, Orson Welles. Now, here's your host for Hallmark Greeting Cards, Arnold Moss. Thank you, Basil Rosdale. This Sunday and every Sunday, the makers of Hallmark Greeting Cards present the radio edition of the Reader's Digest... America's favorite magazine, to remind you that whenever you want to remember someone, you'll find a Hallmark card that says what you want to say the way you want to say it. So when you choose a card, look on the back for the identifying words, a Hallmark card. And remember, a Hallmark card will best express your perfect taste, your thoughtfulness. This is a big day for the Hallmark program. Today we have radio's outstanding dramatic artist, the theater's most daring producer, the theater's most colorful actor, the shooting star of Hollywood, a successful producer of pictures, one of Hollywood's glittering stars, 
And a young man who's setting us all a very good example by taking an active part in politics. That's quite a galaxy of talent. But the whole matter is greatly simplified because all of these are one man. And that one man is Orson Welles. And here he is, all six of them. Thank you, Arnold North. And I might add, a sleight of hand artist and a magician of no mean proportions. He even saws women in hand. Arnold, an omelet is a charm worn around the neck. And what? A bust is something a lady wears. What, what, what did you say? Chivalry is what you feel when you're cold. Oh, come, come on. A myth is a female moth. Well, what's going on here? A spinal column is a long bunch of bones where the head sits on top and you sit on the bottom. Well, what started this on The function of the stomach is to hold up the petticoats. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Savages can have as many wives as they please, but civilized people only have one at a time, and that is known as monotony. <laughs> Mr. Wells, where did you get that beautiful collection of misinformation from the Reader's Digest? Prize bonus from children's test papers. I'm trying them out. I may use... Orson and Rita Hayworth had hoped the birth of their daughter would ease some of the tumultuousness in their relationship. It did not. Hayworth later told her biographer that during their entire marriage, Wells showed no interest in establishing a home. He didn't want the responsibility. Then Wells decided to make a musical of Around the World in 80 Days. His idea? A train-traveling stage circus. The cast soon ballooned to 70. Producer Mike Todd pulled out. Wells called Columbia's Harry Cohn for money. I put all my money into it, and before the opening in Boston, the costumes were sitting in the railway station, and there was $55,000 to pay for them, or they wouldn't go to the theater for the opening night. I was in the box office. I was trying to think who in Hollywood could send me $55,000 in the next three hours. I thought Harry Cohen, only one with the courage to do it. I called him up and I said, Harry, said, what is it? What do you want? I said, I've got the greatest story you've ever read. And I turned the paperback around that the girl in the box office was reading. It was called The Man I Killed. And I said, it's called The Man I Killed written by such and such a paperback, buy it. I said, you get me $55,000 to Boston, two hours, and I'll make the picture, I'll write it and direct it and act in it. 55,000 came. In exchange, Wells would put the play on Broadway and direct a film at no fee. But Rita had a long-standing hatred for Cohn, her boss. In late spring, Wells moved to New York. Around the World in 80 Days premiered at the Adelphi Theater on May 31st, 1946. Good evening. This is Orson Wells, your producer of a special series of broadcasts presented by the makers of Pab's Blue Ribbon, the Mercury Summer Theater of the Air. Ladies and gentlemen, the element of suspense is so vital to our story tonight that our sponsors, the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer, are omitting their usual commercial message during the intermission between the acts so that our play will go uninterrupted from spooky start to spooky finish. Therefore, let's give Ken Roberts his 45-second opportunity right now to extol the merits of that 
Blended, splendid, uh, Ken? Of that blended, splendid, Pabst Blue Ribbon. Those two words tell the whole flavor story. You see, every single drop of Pabst Blue Ribbon is the happy result of blending. The next Friday, June 7th at 10 p.m., Wells debuted a new CBS series. That's right. The Mercury Summer Theater. It was sponsored by Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. On the summer solstice, the Mercury performed Lucille Fletcher's classic, The Hitchhiker. But fresh, clean, sparkling, with the real beer taste coming through just the way you like it. Friends, these days, when your dealer is occasionally unable to supply you with all the Pabst Blue Ribbon you'd like, please keep on asking. For every single bottle you do get, will live up to the same high standards of quality and taste. Yes, every bottle will be, as always, blended, splendid, Pabst Blue Ribbon. And now, Mr. Wells. We of the Mercury reckon that a story doesn't have to appeal to the heart, it can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warm, sometimes you want your spine to tingle. Well, the tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to a classic among... Radio Thrillers. Its author is one of the most gifted of all the writers who've ever worked for this medium, Lucille Fletcher, who wrote the greatest single radio script ever written. Sorry, wrong number. The title of this, her terrifying little tale of Gru, for this evening, is another spine tingler by name, The Hitchhiker. camp on Route 66, just west of Gallup, New Mexico. If I tell it, maybe it'll help me. It'll keep me from going crazy. But I must tell this quickly. I'm not crazy now. I feel perfectly well. Perfectly well. Except that I'm running a slight temperature. My name is Ronald Adams. I'm 36 years of age, unmarried, tall, dark, with a black mustache. I drive a 1940... Ford V8, license number 6V7989. I was born in Brooklyn. All this I know. I know that I'm at this moment perfectly sane. That it is not me who's gone mad. But something else. Something utterly beyond my control. But I must speak quickly. At any moment, the link with life may break. This may be the last thing I ever tell on Earth. The last night... I ever see the stars. Six days ago, I left Brooklyn to drive to California. Goodbye, son. Good luck to you, my boy. Goodbye, mother. Here, give me a kiss, and then I'll go. I'll come out with you to the car. <laughs> oh, it's raining. Stay here at the door. Oh. Hey, what's this, tears? Oh, it's just the trip, Ronald. I wish you weren't driving. Oh, Mother, there you go again. People do it every day. I know, but you'll be careful, won't you? Promise me you'll be extra careful. Don't fall asleep or drive fast or pick up any strangers now, on the road. Strangers? Don't you worry. There isn't anything going to happen. It's just eight days of perfectly simple driving on smooth, decent, civilized roads with a hot dog or a hamburger stand every ten miles. in excellent spirits. Drive ahead. Even the loneliness seemed like a lark. But I reckoned without him. Crossing Brooklyn Bridge that morning in the rain, 
I saw a man leaning against the cables. He seemed to be waiting for a lift. There were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. He was carrying a cheap overnight bag in one hand. He was thin, nondescript, with a cap pulled down over his eyes. He stepped off the walk, and if I hadn't swerved... If I hadn't swerved, I'd have hit him. I almost did. Almost did hit him. Now, I would have forgotten him completely, except that just an hour later, while crossing the Pulaski Skyway over the Jersey Flats, I saw him again. At least he looked like the same person. He was standing now with one thumb, pointing west. I couldn't figure out how he'd got there, but I thought maybe one of those fast trucks had picked him up, beat me to the Skyway, and let him off. I didn't stop for him. Then, late that night, I saw him again. It was on the new Pennsylvania turnpike between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. It's 265 miles long with a very high speed limit. I was just slowing down for one of the tunnels when I saw him standing under an arc light by the side of the road. I could see him quite distinctly. The bag, the cap, even the spots of fresh rain spattered over his shoulders. He hailed me this time. I stepped on the gas like a shot. That's lonely country through the Alleghenies, and I had no intention of stopping. Besides, the coincidences, or whatever it was, gave me the willies. I stopped at the next gas station. Yes, sir. Fill her up, will you? Check your oil? No, thanks. Nice night, isn't it? Yes. It it, uh, hasn't been raining here lately, has it? Not a drop of rain all week. Oh, no? I I suppose that hasn't done your business any harm. Well, people drive through here all kinds of weather. Mostly business, though. Ain't many pleasure cars out in the turnpike this season of the year. I guess not. What about hitchhikers? (laughs) <laughs> Hitchhikers here? Why, what's the matter? Don't you ever see any? A guy would be a fool to start out to hitchhike on this road. Look at it. Then you never see anybody? Nope. Maybe they get a lift before the turnpike starts. I mean, you know, just before the toll house. But then it's a mighty long ride. Most cars wouldn't pick up a guy for that long a ride. This is pretty lonesome country here, mountains and woods. Yeah. Hey, you ain't seen nobody like that, have you? Oh, no, no. It's, it's just a <laughs> technical question, Oh, I see. Well, uh, that'll be $1.49 with the tax. The thing gradually passed from my mind as coincidence. I had a good night's sleep in Pittsburgh. I didn't think about the man all next day until just outside of Zanesville, Ohio. I saw him again. It was a bright, sunshiny afternoon. The peaceful Ohio fields, brown with the autumn stubble, lay dreaming in the golden light. I was driving slowly, drinking it in, when the road suddenly ended in a detour. In front of the barrier, he was standing. Let me explain about his appearance before I go on. I repeat, there was nothing sinister about him. He was as 
drab as a mud fence, nor was his attitude menacing. He merely stood there, waiting, almost drooping a little, the cheap overnight bag in his hand. He looked... He looked as though he'd been waiting there for hours. And he hailed me. He started to walk forward. I'd stopped the car, of course, for the detour. For a few minutes, I couldn't seem to find the new road. I realized he must be thinking that I'd stopped for him. No, no, I'm... Not just now, I'm sorry. Going to California? No, no, not today. The other way, I'm going to New York. Sorry. Sorry. After I got the car back onto the road again, I felt like a fool. Yet the thought of picking him up, of having him sit beside me, was somehow unbearable. Yet at the same time, I felt more than ever unspeakably alone. this means, or even if it has meaning, but I can't resist mention of the fact that this much can be revealed concerning the appearance of tonight's atom bomb. It will be decorated with a photograph, a sizable likeness, of the young lady named Rita Hayward. Not long ago, I watched quite another sort of young lady paint her lips with something called, over the counter, the atom lipstick. The case of the cosmetic being fashioned according to the popular conceptions of the original war engine. I'm sure you won't need to be told that Miss Hayworth is not one to use such a thing or to hold it as anything less than a very hideous conceit. Her face is not on the atom bomb then by her own choosing, but by election of the flyers who will drop the bomb and who are clearly the business according to their taste. As regards selection, I find their taste beyond reproach, but the bomb dropping itself better be worthy of the accompanying photograph. Is this, Faustus claimed of Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless tower of civilian? Well, I want a better toast, a better boast for Rebecca. I want my daughter to be able to tell her daughter that grandmother's picture was on the last atom bomb ever to explode. Now my time's about up. About time for me to say goodbye to you. With one more word about this OPA business, if I have a second. You can send a wire, if you will, or a special delivery letter to your congressman or... President Truman upholding his courageous stand, demanding immediate enactment of effective price control legislation. If you do, you'll be saving that dollar and making it worth something. Now my time is up. Thanks for listening. Please let me come to call again the same time. Next week, same station. Until then, I'll be in yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company.
When Orson Welles took to the air on WJZ in New York at 1.15 in the afternoon on June 30, 1946, the United States was about to undergo two massive changes. At 5 p.m. New York time, the fourth atomic bomb was detonated in the Bikini Atoll. The nuclear test called Operation Crossroads was the first atomic detonation after Nagasaki. A fleet of 73 retired and unmanned ships were destroyed, sunk, or damaged during the test. The men dropping the bomb named it Gilda in Rita Hayworth's honor. Her biggest film was then out in theaters. She was mortified. Then at midnight, the emergency wartime powers of the United States Office of Price Administration expired. Although the OPA's powers were reinstated within the month, they were dissolved the following May. In the year after World War II, more than 5 million U.S. citizens went on strike, stifling the economy. It led to the Taft-Hartley Act, limiting the power of labor unions. The largest inflation rise in the country's modern history ensued. Wells remained in New York the rest of the summer. Around the World in 80 Days closed on August 3rd. The Mercury Summer Theater went off the air on September 13th, and the final commentary aired on October 6, 1946 on ABC. It was the last time Orson Welles produced his own radio series. to carry a gun traveling alone in the park was but if you knew you had the gun in your bag why throw away the bag i meant for you to find it i i don't know how to shoot it's easy you just pull the trigger the film harry Cohn ordered orson wells to make was the lady from shanghai for the lead wells cast his estranged wife rita hayworth Many of the Mercury players were featured. Some dame, ain't she? Yeah. Comes a change in weather. I did Around the World in 80 Days. Lost a fortune on it. But we had a musical that Brecht went to see seven times. And was, I think, the best thing I ever did in theater. But it was a financial disaster. And I had divorced from Rita. She came to me and said, I want to make your picture. I want you to come back with me. Harry sent for me and said, I want you to do that with Rita, for her sake. Well, that turned it from five weeks to a big, super movie. Production began on October 2nd, and Wells clashed with Harry Cohn from the start. Orson convinced Rita to cut her hair off and dye it blonde. Although the couple was on the verge of divorce, Hayworth sided with Wells. She later told the New York Times, Orson was trying something new with me. Will you help me? But Harry Cohn wanted the image, the image he was going to make me till I was 90. Do you believe in love at all, Mrs. Bannister? The lady from Shanghai was a very good picture. Give me the wheel. So what does Harry Cohn say when he sees it? He's ruined you. He cut your hair off. The essential plot is the plot of the book that I pointed to, which I had never read. 
In here, we're less likely to be heard. We think it was only your husband you wanted to kill. Why don't you try to understand? So George the theory, which has been printed a thousand times, this was an act of vengeance against Rita. After that, I knew I couldn't trust him. It was a great device. He was mad. Which I was going to degrade to her and so on. It's nonsense because all that's in the book. We could have gone off together. Into the sunrise. She'd read the book and wanted to play this character. So she was an actress. I love you. You build her up and says, the end of self-focus. Yes, all that. Then put her in the gutter at the end. But haven't you heard ever of something better to follow? No. After filming wrapped in February of 1947, Cohn ordered a series of retakes. I knew I'd find you two together. If I hadn't, Elsa, I might have gone on playing it your way. They took another year. You didn't know that. Columbia then chopped more than an hour from Wells' original cut. I presume you think that if you murder me here... Wells delivered the original film on time and under budget. But Cohn's retakes helped contribute to Wells' reputation for not being able to pay attention to details. Our good friend, the district attorney, is just itching to open a letter that I left with Upon original release, the film was considered a disaster. So you'd be foolish to fire that gun. These mirrors, it's difficult to tell. You are aiming at me, aren't you? I'm aiming at you, lover. Not long after, on November 10th, 1947, Orson Welles and Rita Hayworth were officially divorced. But you know, I'm pretty tired of both of us. You know, for a smart girl, you make a lot of mistakes. You should have let me live. You're gonna need a good lawyer. came in to that wonderful company of March of Time. We had a Welsh act, and he was going to play a Welshman. And of course, that glorious voice, Paul Stewart, who was an actor, as you all know from pictures, but he was always on the air before that. He was on the March of Time and on many other shows. He heard Orson and said that he introduced that voice to the company of the March of Time. And when Orson came in, he was such an overwhelming presence because of his youth. Maybe he was 19 about that time. And he was so gaunt and hungry looking. And uh, <laughs> it was a rough time. I don't mean that to be in any way comical because 
a lot of people were not eating regularly in the theater, <laughs> and it was all very obvious in this eloquent performer who gripped us all the minute he opened his mouth. It was thrilling, absolutely thrilling. <laughs> the voice and the performance was something never to be forgotten. You suppose Orson was ever out of work? I mean, yes, he was out of work. And this was the first was work he had had. He was doing, I forget if Ted was with him at that time, I think this was perhaps before Shoemaker's Holiday that he came on March of Time. And things were very, very spare for him. In 1947, wanting to bring Macbeth to film, Wells teamed with producer Charles K. Feldman to convince Herbert Yates, president of Republic Pictures, to finance. Wells guaranteed to deliver a completed negative of Macbeth on a budget of $700,000. When some members of Republic's board expressed misgivings on the project, Wells agreed to personally pay any amount over the initial ask. He brought Irish actor Dan O'Herley in as Macduff, and cast former child star Roddy McDowell as Malcolm. Longtime friend and radio legend Jeanette Nolan would play Lady Macbeth. You asked about Macbeth. He came to our house here. We were surprised when he came, and he described to John and me his idea, and he came to us because he said he wanted Lady Macbeth to be kind of a wife like John had. <laughs> didn't want her, you know, with all of the evil overtones. And he said, I'm going to try to be like you. You know, he was so funny. I know. John, he loved John. <laughs> he was bringing Dan from Ireland to do Macduff. And so he said to John, the only part you can't play are my part and Macduff. But he says, you can play anything else you want. And John said, I will only play the part that has the least lines. <laughs> I don't want to have to learn lines. But anyway, he described his dream of making what you could almost call an entirely wholesome pair of people out of Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, which was surprising to us, you know. We hadn't really read it that way. And so, Nor had anyone else. I know. But it was very interesting, and he wanted it to be barbaric. And then he laughed, you know, and he said, of course, your Montana backbone, that'll take care of all of that rustic part of it. But he said, I want it to be all black and all white. And he said, I know I can't get that, but I have a great cameraman who will do the very best he can to make it look like a woodcut. That's how he visualized it. Hmm. He wanted it to look like a series of woodcuts. And he said, I want the Scottish. I want that rogue, I want that dialect throughout the cast. That goes with the barbaric aspects of my version in this particular dramatization of Macbeth. So we were quite overwhelmed and amazed that he had come to see us and that he offered us that opportunity to do that. Wells made several changes to Shakespeare's original, like adding significance to the witches. They were played by two other Hollywood radio legends, Peggy Weber and Sam Spade's Lorene Tuttle. Of course, a lot of the shows were put out awfully fast, you know. One summer, I did the Sam Spade show and the Orson Welles show. 
all at once. It seemed to me they were all at the same time, practically. So I said to Orson, I can't make this rehearsal. I can possibly make the show in about three minutes if I can get from NBC to CBS. But I said, I can't rehearse. And he said, well, come over and rehearse noontime then, during the lunch hour. So I would come over there, and of course he always loved to talk. And he would talk all through lunch, and I wouldn't get to rehearse with him because he always had a coterie of people around him, you know, and wanted to hear him talk. So I would just sit there, you know, with my script in my hand. Then I'd have to hand the script back because they'd say, oh, there'll be a lot of changes, so you better not take it with you. Wells expressed frustrations with wardrobes in the tight schedule. He had the cast pre-record all of their dialogue. Locations were leftover sets from westerns normally made at Republic. The entire production was done in 23 days in July of 1947. In September, Wells signed on to star in Gregory Ratoff's Black Magic. Shooting would take place in Rome. He wouldn't return until 1948. Republic initially trumpeted the film as an important work, entering it in the 1948 Venice Film Festival. But it was abruptly withdrawn after poor comparisons with Laurence Olivier's version of Hamlet also being screened. Life magazine gave the film a terrible review in October of 1948, saying that Wells' days as the boy wonder were long over. When he returned from Europe in the spring, Wells cut 20 minutes from the film at Republic's request and recorded narration to cover the gaps. But when it was finally released, it too was called a disaster. Wells' last appearance in the 1940s on American radio was in a pre-recorded segment on mail call over the Armed Forces Radio Service on October 13, 1948. Now 33 years old, Orson Welles had enough of Hollywood. He would move to Europe full-time. like to work with the top people. I'm not very good when I work with people who are not very good. <laughs> I'm just not. I like to work with people who are vibrant and know their business. I work a thousand times better if I have a challenge. I think it comes from being a Leo like I am. I just think, you know, because I'm a Leo, I just, I roar that way. Good evening. And with me once again is the man who, uh really makes the program possible with his fabulous collection of recordings, Ed Corcoran. Well, thank you, Dick. That's very nice words. Ed, you know, I'm going to let you introduce our guest tonight because you had the opportunity to uh, meet him prior to the show. Maybe I can start off by asking you what your license number is there, One three seven five nine six. What does that mean to you, Dick? <laughs> None other than Sam Spade, alias Howard Duff, uh, Sam Spade, and uh, many other famous roles in both radio, television, movies, and theater, Dick. So we've got another biggie here. Tonight. We certainly have. <laughs> Howard, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the golden age of radio and to put your career in perspective because you are known today by current-day audiences on television and motion pictures, on the stage. You're uh, one of the few who had a major career in radio but has gone on to even more exciting things. You mean I've survived. real sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Goodbye. Now, wait a minute, Effie. You can't leave like this, not without... Oh, all right. I'll talk to you while I'm putting my hat on. Well, can't you at least look at me? 
After all, you should give me a chance to justify... Sam, apparently you're laboring under an apprehension. Of course I am. Oh, boy, am I glad I picked the last in June and the first in July. What are you talking about? My vacation. Vacation? You just had a vacation a few months back. Well, Sam, that's a year. Well, if you want to take advantage of the legal technicality... Now, Sam, don't say goodbye, man. Well, it... Well, it's customary, I suppose. It's... It's lucky that some of us keep our nose to the grindstone, our ear to the ground... An eye to the future. Huh? Television's just around the corner, you know. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's the spring of 1946. Famed suspense director William Spear has finally agreed to take on another show. He'll cast a relative unknown actor named Howard Duff in the title role. Duff will become synonymous with his character, Sam Spade, taking the lead into the 1950s. And as for Orson Welles in the 1950s, well... Victims? Don't be melodramatic. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spin? Free of income tax, old man. Free of income tax. Well, you can save money now, Dave. A lot of good your money will do you in jail. That jail's in another zone. There's no proof against me. Besides you. Reading material used in today's episode was Citizen Wells by Frank Brady. This is Orson Wells by Wells and Peter Bogdanovich. On the Air by John Dunning. Discovering Orson Wells by Jonathan Rosenbaum. Orson Wells on the Air at orsonwells.indiana.edu and wellsnet.com. On the Interview Front, Orson Wells was with Peter Bogdanovich, Dick Cavett, Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, Leslie McGahee. Dinah Shore, and Hugh Weldon. Byron Kane and Jeanette Nolan were with Spurvac. To find out more, please go to Spurvac.com. Norman Corwin was with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chat at speakingofradio.com. Howard Duff was with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear their full chat at goldenage-wtic.org. Robert Wise was with Leslie McGahee. Jack Benny spoke with Jack Carney. Lorene Tuttle spoke with Same Time, Same Station in 1972. And Agnes Moorhead was with Dick Cavett in 1973. Selected music featured in today's episode was Perfida by Jimmy Dorsey and his orchestra, The Klezmer's Wedding by Andre Moisan, The Third Man by Anton Karras, Hooray for Hollywood by Don Swan, The Battle Cry of Freedom by Jacqueline Schwab, and Star of Bethlehem conducted by John Williams. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Haindages, two radio show collectors who help supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. Ted's got a Facebook group, Radio Memories. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. 
I've been visiting since 2000. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls episode 105 will spotlight the adventures of Sam Spade and reveal how the chemistry amongst those on the series helped create one of radio's most fun shows. This episode will be available beginning July 1st, 2020, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash the Wallbreakers. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the Wallbreakers. So, until July 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 104, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>